0: Name of Encheduana. She was the highest priest flying, the on flying vehicles. I. Therefore, she was able to write, and she brought 80 Sumerian tablets, which our archaeologists today named the Holy Hymns of Enchedwana. Finally, these old texts were translated by the Sumerologist Dr. Hermann Burger. He's a German Sumerologist. This specialist, one of the few who is able to translate Sumerian cuneiforms, was absolutely fascinated by the writings of Enchenwana. She definitely writes about so-called dinghiers. And these dinghirs are flying machines, comparable to the Vimanas in ancient India. The dinghiers are flying chariots, in the Ethiopian book, like comparable to the Ethiopian book, Kebra Negest, where King Solomon flies around the world, or the Spaceship of Ezekiel in the Bible. 40 years ago, the Sumerologists believed that the writings of Encheduana has to do with some sort of folklore of the gods, or with the moon, or the sun, or the lightning, or the clouds. Dr. Burger, in the meantime clearly and without any doubts translated the hymns of Enchedwana as modern technology. She was in fact writing about real space stations in orbit, about machines coming down from these stations. And here on Earth, these flying machines were called today space shuttle. Today we would call them a space shuttle. These flying machines were refueled with the mixture of different oils and carbide. It is similar a similar composition of liquids and carbides as we find them in old Indian texts. And Jedwana also writes about the terrible noise which these flying machines made, comparable again to Ezekiel in the Bible. He also compares the noise with the thundering of a waterfall. Finally, Encheduana made clear that the humans were sort of slaves of these gods, except the chosen ones. And these chosen ones were a group of humans which stand under the command of the highest. The king and the people all worked for the gods. In return, the gods helped the chosen ones against their enemies. Now, the fact is, Many old texts, especially in old India, in <coughs> the you can read in detail that thousands of years ago, you know, a huge testimony for the Jewish people, and it's fairly well known <laughs> that in the early steps of gathering the Jews back to Israel, evangelical Christians had a tremendous And yet, sometimes they tell me I support this thing
1: or or that thing, you know, different kinds of organizations. My challenge to these...
0: ...read in detail that thousands of years ago, gigantic spaceships revolved our planet. The ancient Indians didn't call these objects spaceships. They had no word for spaceships in technology. They called them cities in the firmament or cities on the firmament. One day, smaller vehicles flew down from these cities to the earth. The ancient Indians called these smaller vehicles the bimanas. One of the humans, his name was Arjuna, was taken up to these cities in the firmament. He learned the language of the extraterrestrials and he was an eyewitness of a war in the so-called heaven. Three cities came together and two of them were destroyed. For the people on earth, it looked as if 10,000 of shooting stars had fallen down. Okay. Now, Arjuna was living up there for a few years. He even learned the language of these extraterrestrials. When he came back, he obviously described what he had been seeing. We made a computer animation out of the text of Arjuna roughly 5,000 years old. He really describes how he, how he flew up there in a smaller machine. He called the machine, as I said before, <coughs> Vimanas. <coughs> he even gives the name of the pilot, who brings him up there. The pilot's name was <coughs> Matali. Arjuna describes when he came up to the sky city, he saw the stars for the first time, like brilliant objects, before, They were all believing that the stars are simply lights set into the sky by some gods. And then he described this uh, war in heaven. A war in heaven? He really describes that these extraterrestrials, they had fight against each other. Some of them wanted to have sex with humans. Others wanted to steal our raw material, gold, (coughs) diamonds, and so on. That was the reason for a war in heaven. Now when we see these things, normally we think, come on, this is all fantasy. They simply saw the lightning coming down from the sky, they hear the noise of the thundering, and they believe that this is a war in heaven. But the explanation is not correct, because there were discussions between the humans and these extraterrestrials, and there were information, scientific information. In one of these uh, old texts, you can read, that the extraterrestrial says to the human young man, "Look out of the window. You will see this little light out there? You humans call it moon, but the moon has no light by itself. The moon receives its light from the sun. <coughs> and then he explains the different moon phases. Why is the moon sometimes full and half and disappears, etc.?" <coughs> oh my God! you have forgotten. So this is scientific information. Also, it is explained in the, in the ancient text, that some of the extraterrestrials explain to our human. you see this bright, shining light there. You humans, you call it sun. You see all these little lights out there. They are called stars, but the stars are suns like this one. And then he explains to him our calendar, that the Earth is revolving around the sun in 365 days, plus leak hours. hours, not years, uh, not days. So. This is scientific information, and that's why the explanation for a natural solution is simply mean the, the, the lightning, the thundering, the storm is not enough. There would be no explanation. Now, when I was a young man, a broad, grew up in Switzerland, they told me, "When you live correctly, when you kill uh, nobody, you tell no bad stories and so on. you are correct. Finally, when you die, you will go to heaven. Heaven is the place of absolute happiness. In heaven, you are surrounded by angels, archangels. You are <clears throat> near to God. Later, I learned that in our Christian tradition, there was a war in heaven. You remember, maybe, one day an archangel with the name of Lucifer came to the throne of the Almighty God with his disciple and said, we do not serve you anymore. Then the Almighty God called for the help of the Arch- Archangel Michael to true Lucifer out of Heavens. If Heaven would have been the place of absolute happiness, there would be no war, no opposition. You have no war, no opposition when you are happy. So you should change the word Heaven into the word space. The same thing happened with figures like an angel we always think angels, they were lovely persons, they were helpful to the humans. No. Many angels, they are called in the Bible, fallen angels, had sex with humans. Other killed humans, thousands of it. You can read it in the second book of, <coughs> of the Kings. Heavens, uh, angels were not angels as we think, spiritual beings, forget it. Change the word angel into extraterrestrial. Now I have changed only two words. I make heaven into space. I changed angels into extraterrestrials. Do this with 10 words, and you change the complete ancient text. It becomes a new meaning. So in the beginning, thousands and thousands of years ago, (coughs) our ancestors had contact with these extraterrestrials. They could not understand it. They called them the gods. There are no gods, as we all know. There's only one God. We believe in God, and I'm a deep believer in God but no gods in plural. They believed that these beings from outer space were gods, and that was the misunderstanding in the beginning of all the religions. Then these extraterrestrials disappeared again, by the way, with the promise to return in the far future. That's another story which i talk about tomorrow. And the humans started to draw these gods. They started with cave paintings all around the world cave paintings worldwide. <laughs> Always these so-called gods have some halos, or helmets, or rays coming out of their heads. These are so-called Vandina figures in Australia. There are others in near Switzerland. Valcamonica, it's on the Italian side of, of Valcamonica. Or uh, we have some of these cave paintings cave among the Hopi Indians. Hopi, this is an Indian tribe in Arizona, in the United States. There are several of them, or, as you all know, Natsuka, you know Natsuka, we'll speak about Natsuka later, Natsuka is plain with these gigantic lines on the ground, but on Natsuka also we have figures, wait a second, I find out here. You see, ah, I see it here. On, on Nazca, on the hills, you have some of these gigantic figures with, again, with rays coming out of their heads. Then we have this figure, when everybody when, who flies to Nazca, over the plain of Nazca, you have to fly over this figure. Still today, in official archaeologists, they call it El Astronauta, the astronaut. The figure is roughly 30 meters high. One arm is pointing to the sky, the other one to the ground, like a connection between Earth and the beings uh, out there. Then we have other figures. This one is in Palpa. Palpa is in Peru. Now this figure is laid out in a way that you have to fly. Practically at the moment, you see nothing. What is a figure here? You have to fly over it, and then you see it. Or finally, a big cave painting in the Tassili mountain. Tassili is Algeria. Algeria is in the Sahara. This figure, bring the Tassili thing. Bring the next. Yeah. This figure, in originally, is six meter high in a cave wall, six meter high. So the Stone Age painter who made this had to climb up somehow. Now, simply, I showed you a few cave paintings around the world. There are thousands of them around the world simply to demonstrate this is not a geographical fact in a certain geographical region. For example, in Europe. Forget it. Stone Age people made these things worldwide because worldwide they saw these beings, these so called flying machines, the Vimanas, etc. Later, when the period of uh, cave painting was over, our Stone Age people learned to model, to chisel, and they started to chisel and to show their figures. This is Tulum. <coughs> Tulum Tulum is a city in Mexico on the Caribbean Sea, and the whole city of Tulum is dedic- dedicated to the descending gods. You see somebody, <coughs> his legs spread up here. He's, uh, uh, he has wings, his arms down like, like some someone lying on a bobsled and, and coming down from his cabin. This is a drawing. The original looks like this. Of course the original is a little destroyed. The same thing with the next one. That's old Tulum. So again the wings he said. His legs he even has shoes on, you see here. In originally it looks like this. You still see the shoes here. The wings. This, like the cave paintings, goes on all over the world. Soon as our ancestors learned to chisel, to make models, they showed the gods. This is one of the many figures in the Central Museum of Guatemala City. Or another one far away from Guatemala, this is in Japan. These figures were holy, about 800 years B.C. It was still Stone Age in Japan. They were holiday chiseled. They were standing on altars. They are called Dogu figures. But even the Japanese people in, in antiquity knew nothing about glasses. So what did they model, the Dogu figures? This one really comes down from the sky. You find the original in Villa Hermosa. Villa Hermosa is Mexi- Mexico. Mexico. This figure really comes down, flies down. You see, if you look closely, he has a helmet on. If we take a modern interpretation, he has even a microphone on his lips. His hands are looking towards, bending towards the earth, the legs (coughs) up. He's descending to us, to the humans. One of the best explanations I always have to show, at least optically, is still Palenque. You know, Palenque is in Mexico. In Mexico, uh, in, in the city of Palenque are many of these pyramids. That pyramid is called the Temple of Inscription because up there they found 800 inscriptions. That's why they call it the Temple of Inscription. <coughs> now, inside, and that was found in 1952, Professor Dr. Rutz inside, <coughs> up here he found a little groove and then they pushed out a stone plate And inside, they found a staircase going down. But in 1952, this was completely filled, filled with stone. It took three years before the staircase was empty so that they could go down there. Finally, they stood before a a door which had the form of a triangle. That was seen for the first time. They opened the door very roughly. They destroyed part of the door, you can see it here. Of course, there was no grid at that time. That's only made today today, uh, for protections uh, for the tourists. So they entered into a room. And the room was covered with a gigantic stone slab. I say gigantic. This thing is three meter 80 long, three meter 80 long, two meter 20 large. One block, one simple block of one stone, weighting roughly about eight tons. The room itself under the pyramid is nine meters long, four meters large, and seven meters high. Now, here you clearly see a man sitting on a sort of chair. He's bending forward, almost like a a racing motorcyclist. (coughs) He uses his hands to manipulate some control. You see the upper hand? You see his fingers and the knob here? The lower hand, you see four fingers. He's winding something up. He's sitting on a chair in a sort of capsule. All this around here is a sort of capsule. And outside, at the end of the capsule, you see something like a linking flam coming out there. This was my interpretation since Chariots of the Gods, since 50 years. Of course, I was immediately accused by the academic community. They said, this is all rubbish. This is all nonsense. This stone simply represents Pakal. Pakal was the second last ruler of the city of Palenque. And they absolutely agree, agree, it is Pakal. They said Pakal is seated on the open mouth of an earth monster, what I call something like a capsule. Here, they call the open mouth of an earth monster. Then the archaeologists see some sort of tree of life or cross of life. They see a stylized bird. That should be the, the cross of life here. Or his head. They simply see the stylized hairs of the beard of the weather girl. Get it? Now, in our times, four years ago, the most uh, advanced archaeologists in Maya archaeology <laughs> are two Professor David and George Stewart from the University of Texas in Austin. They are the best trans- <coughs> translators of Maya writings. And they have come up now with the newest explanation for this. On the third tablet of the Temple of Inscription, Stewart and Stewart found a date in connection with that man, Pakal. The date shows the year. 1,247,654 years back in time. Another date says, Pakal will return to our planet in 4,000 years in the future. I am accused of falsification because I should not look at the picture crosswise. Not this way, I should look at it lengthwise. So like this here. Now, as you know, I'm a man with fantasies, and if I have to look at it lengthwise, this brings me to a connection to the Far East. I show you in the Far East a temple, the temple of Borobudur. Borobudur itself, the temple, represents a gigantic stupa. And on the terrace of the temple are hundreds of smaller stupas. These things, who look for us like a bell, are called stupa in Buddhism. The stupa has different meanings. One of them says the stupa is the smaller vehicle in which one can reach the bigger vehicle of the gods in the firmament. You remember we had vimanas in ancient Indians. The vimanas are the smaller vehicles with which you reach the bigger, the cities in space. We have the smaller vehicle called by Ezekiel, the splendorous of the highest. We have the smaller vehicle in, in old Egypt, the flying sun disk, etc. So this is a smaller vehicle with which you could reach the bigger vehicle in the sky. And this brings me to my fantasy. In there, these, these stupas are not empty. In every stupa, the young Buddha is sitting. What is he doing? He's sitting there. He, he uses his hands. Symbolically, to manipulate some controls. And now look what I made out of it. (coughs) Palenque, Stupa, it was all the same worldwide. All modern explanations, they make sense it's not nonsense. We just have to have the courage to look at these things with modern eyes. And the nonsense of yesterday makes sense. Until yesterday, we made all our translations in a psychological, religious meaning, because we think we have to understand it that way. It has to do with God, with the Almighty. It had nothing to do with God, with the Almighty. It had to do with extraterrestrials, with space habitats out there. With smaller vehicles, etc. So we have to learn. It's a process of changing the spirit of time. In Germany, we call it der Zeitgeist. The spirit of time has to change. The meaning today is different, and the meaning today makes sense. Now, just to end this short chapter, there is one point which makes me completely furious. Uh, <coughs> Natska, Natska is a a plane 500 kilometers south of Lima, the capital of Peru. It's all desert. When you fly over Nazca, first you see nothing. It's all just desert with little red stones and brown sand. When you fly a little higher, you see some figures showing out of the desert, figures of fishes, monkeys, spiders, fishes, but of such over-dimensional size that you can see them only from the air. Then you fly higher again and of a sudden you see gigantic lines looking like airstrips. I never said in none of my books that this is an airport. I said seen from the air, it gives you the imagination, it looks like airstrip, it starts abruptly, it ends abruptly. The biggest of these lines is 3.8 kilometers long. Then, so we have the figures, we have the lines, airstrip looking lines, and then we have small lines. Very small lines, I mean about one meter large, But the last, the longest of it, is 23 kilometers long. Going over hills, lands, and mountains 23 kilometers. So what nerves me, practically every two years on television, I see so-called documentaries about Nazca. Serious people, mostly scientists, archaeologists, they are crossing over the plain of Nazca with their shoes. They are scratching away the surface of these uh, red stones, and then a bright shining surface appears, which is absolutely normal. They have nothing against it. And by doing so, you can make these lines, you can make these figures. Why not? But they never say or show the truth. I will show you now a few pictures of Nazca, which you never saw in any TV documentary. For the scientists, they do not exist. What all have I been reading the past years about Nazca? It was suggested in the scientific textbook that Nazca was an astronomical calendar. The next one said, no, it is a cult for the water gods. Another said, it is a cult for the mountain gods. It is a cult for agriculture. My goodness, agriculture, there was never agriculture here. It's all too dry. One suggested it is a pre-Inca sport place, something like a uh, Pre-Inca Olympics. Or said it's told just Fata Morgana. Oh, a start place, place for hot air balloons. One said, "No, these are acre plots." Forget it. Boundary markers, processing streets, maps. Look at this picture carefully. This, by the way, is the normal road. Well, that thing is not working. It's the normal road here, the so-called Panamericana. Now you see these lines. Now you see some lines under these lines. If this would have been produced by scratching away with the shoes, the, the, the little stones, then you would have scratched away the lines under it also. They simply tell us scientific rubbish, which is a shame. Or here, you see many lines from different sides come together to one point. We have no idea, why, what all this is. Take this picture into your brain for eternity because you never see it, neither in scientific books nor in the so-called scientific documentaries on TV. This is Natska, original Natska. I have 5,000 pictures of it in my archive. I was flying over Natsuka for three weeks every early morning at every, Evening, when the sunlight was still there. Now this here, look. They demonstrate to you in the documentation, you just scratch away with your shoes the little stones until you make the designs. Now you see that line. And you see under the line, under the line here, you see zigzags. They, they simply show through the, through the large line here. If this here, this would be the product of scratching away, then you would have scratched away the zigzag lines under it also. That's something completely different than what the scientific community believes. But no modern tests with modern equipment, measurements, have ever been made because they think it's nonsense anyhow. And what do they never say? This here is laid out on a mountain, here. The whole top of the mountain is cut off. This is a normal mountain. The mountain came from both sides, to the top of the mountain, this not here. Here, at the top of the mountain has been cut off, and you see the zigzag lines beneath it. But you never see these things on television. What kind of science is this, that's what I ask myself. Now, we have a problem with extraterrestrials. As Nike Pope said before, we have no proof we don't want extraterrestrials why do we have a problem <clears throat> it's because of our education generally spoken there are two types of humans on this planet one sort of humans is religious it doesn't matter what sort of religion the other sort of humans are scientific the religious group have been told that god made everything he makes the universe the stars the plants the trees the animals but as crown of creation, God made us humans. In a scientific community, we know that's all just evolution, evolution, mutation, selection, but we are the top of evolution. Have you, ladies and gentlemen, ever remarked that in both cases, religiously, crown of creation, scientifically, top of evolution, in both cases, we are the greatest Something like humans does not exist anymore. We have a psychological problem. We don't want to have extraterrestrials. If we accept they, their existence, we are not the greatest anymore. That's what we have to change. And we are full in the process of changing. The spirit of time will change. You know, every normal human wants to be reasonable. He wants to be serious. Normally a scientist or a journalist is a reasonable and serious personality. And they are not liars, as sometimes it's told in in conspiracy uh, talks. No. The journalists and the scientists I know are brilliant men, but they want to be serious. But UFOs or things like this seems to them to be not serious. They want to be reasonable, not to be ridiculed. But UFO things seems to them to be not it's serious, not, not uh, understandable. That's why don't they talk about it. And they never appears in big newspapers. That in big newspapers, you speak about the possibility of life out there, but you never speak about these kind of things. That seems to be not serious, unreasonable. That's what my work is with 83 years. I try to help a little, little, little to change this spirit of time. So that what, what seems to be not reasonable becomes slowly reasonable, and then we have a new world and a new understanding what we are in relation to the universe.
1: Common people around the world are doing the uncommon. I mean, it is literally the Netflix of spirituality. Come <laughs> on. learn is almost never described publicly. This is
0: a very special weekend. Please give it up for Mr. Eric von Daniken. Eric. Thank you, Great. Thank you for your introduction. Perfect. Okay. So. Uh, okay. Good afternoon ladies and gentlemen, you know I'm from Switzerland, uh, my English is not the best, I still have a heavy German accent, but I hope you will understand it. So, It's a long, long time ago, no one knows how long, but at least 6,000 years. And then a gigantic spaceship surrounded our planet, how do we know this? We know it first from old Indian texts. There are many, many old Indian texts which are at least 6,000 years old. And there, in the fifth book of the Mahabharata with the name Mausala Purva, there you can read that of a sudden, three cities, they call it cities, not spaceships, because they had no word for spaceships. Three cities surrounded our planet Earth. The people who were watching these cities in the firmament, they were talking about them. And of a sudden, from these three cities, smaller vehicles descended to our planet. The old Indians called these smaller vehicles Vimanas. There were different types of Vimanas, not only one shape. It's like today we have different types of aircrafts. A helicopter doesn't look the same thing like as a Jumbo jet, or a propellant aircraft is not the same thing as a jet airliner, so... There were different types of Vimanas. Now, and out of these smaller vehicles, we would call them today Space Shuttle. All of a sudden, so-called gods came out. So-called gods. We all know that there are no gods. There is only one god. But our ancestor, in Stone Age people, they could not understand what was going on, so they believed that these visitors are some gods. The word gods is a misunderstanding. There were never gods. They simply called the extraterrestrial gods. So these so-called gods came out. They looked around the planet and they chose a few of the young men to teach them. One of the young men, his name was Arjuna. And Arjuna was brought up up to the sky. He learned the language of the extraterrestrials. They teach him in writing. And later they brought him back to the planet Earth. And here, of course, the people asked him, Arjuna, where have you been? What have you seen? And Arjuna was writing down his experiences with the so-called gods. He said he was up there in this city over the planet. And as higher he came, he saw a lot, a lot of smaller cities up there. Some of them were composite that they looked like different bulls, one bull next to the other bull. That's what the eyewitness Archuna said 6,000 years ago. He himself was brought up with an object called the Vimana. As I said before, the Vimanas were a smaller object. Archuna even knows the name of his pilot who brought him up there. His pilot's name was Matali. They brought him up there. He saw gigantic cities, he called them cities, because in his time he had no word for spaceship, neither for mother spaceship. He was teached up there, he learned the language of these extraterrestrials. And then he realized that, they, that these extraterrestrials, they had fights discrepancies among them each other or or other. Some of these extraterrestrials, they wanted to have sex with humans on the planet. Others didn't say, no, that's forbidden, we cannot do this. Some of them want to steal our raw material. Others said, no, we are not allowed to do this. So there was a fight in heaven, a war in heaven, described by Arjuna in the fifth book of the Mahabharata in the Mausala Purva. Two of these cities were destroyed. And from the earthlings, it looks as if 10,000 of little stones are falling down from the sky. Now when we hear such a story, 6,000 years old, our first reaction is, this is all fantasy. That's all dreams. A war in the sky, a war in heaven, that's rubbish. They simply had dreams. But it's not the dream. The funny thing is, Every mythology, every great mythology, start with Greek mythology. For a brave man, you will go to heaven. Heaven is the place of happiness. In heaven, you are assembled with God and the angels. And later, I learned as an adult, there was a fight, a war in heaven. Don't you remember? Of a sudden, an archangel with the name of Lucifer comes to the throne of the Almighty God and said, we don't serve you anymore. And then the archangel Michael came to destroy Lucifer and his disciples. If heaven would have been the place of absolute happiness, then a war in heaven is impossible. Then you are happy. Then you have no opposition, nothing. So we should yeah. ch- change the word heaven into sky or into space. Then it makes sense. The same situation we have with the word like angels. We are the Angels are the good ones. You know, angels, they are represented in in Stone Age uh, cave paintings with helmets, halos. We make designs. They have wings. They were the nice guys, the angels. But in reality, some of these angels were a catastrophe. They killed and destroyed thousands and thousands of people directly from the air. Here, for example, this is in Egypt. This is the temple called Edfu, and on this wall, of the Edfu temple, think there is actually of the Edfu temple is described how a god, his name was Horhud, came down and helped the pharaoh. The pharaoh said, "Please, I need your help because I'm surrounded by enemies." Now this god with the name of Horhud destroyed all the enemies of the pharaoh from the air. Now this is in Egypt. But the same story we read in the Bible Just take the second book of the Kings. For example, this is one of the warriors who called the God Azura Mazda from Persia. The same story we have in the Bible. Just read, for example, the second book of the Kings, chapter 19, verse 35. And there it says... And the angel came down from heaven and killed 185,000 Assyrians. On the next morning, there were only dead bodies on the ground. I'm just going to say something a little bit controversial. Show me your morning routine and I'll show you your future. That's right. I believe the way you start your day has a direct impact on the success of your business, your finances, your relationships. The next morning, there were only dead bodies on the ground. An angel from heaven killed 185,000 Assyrians. We have to change the word angel into the word extraterrestrial. Now I changed two words. I changed heaven into space. I changed angels into extraterrestrials. Now, we just have to change 10 keywords in the ancient texts. And I changed the whole context of the old texts. And it's time we do this. We really have to do this. So we have these inscriptions of so-called angels but the ancients were extraterrestrials. And one of the very clear descriptions, which you easy can control, and which was part of chariots of the gods, which I wrote more than 50 years ago, comes from the Bible. Remember the story in the Bible of concerning the prophet Ezekiel? Ezekiel, you find him at the end of the Bible, at the end of the Old Testament. And uh, I first now show you five pictures coming out of Old Bible. I mean Old Bible, 200 years old. Simply to give an impression what our forefather had in mind when they read the text of Ezekiel. Later, I explain you how we came to make to make a modern explanation of the whole Ezekiel story. And finally, I will show you a computer animation concerning Ezekiel, which is one of the best you can ever see. So, Ezekiel, by the way, you have to know by profession. He was priest high priest at the Temple of Jerusalem. On his time, roughly 600 BC, the Jewish community, Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians. And all the high society of the Jewish community went as slaves to Babylonia, including Ezekiel. As a high priest, he belonged to the high society. So he was a slave in Babylonia. And he writes, they were working there for the Babylonians of a sudden, the firmament opened. These people, the slaves, hear the noise in the firmament. They saw a light, and something was coming down. They all were afraid. Of course, they believed God is visiting us. Ezekiel, as a high priest, he's the first one who thinks I have to, to, to give honor to the God. So he is the first one. He stands up, and then he realizes this is not God. And he describes what happened. So this is Ezekiel, out of an old Bible, and just before him, he sees a gigantic thing. He calls this gigantic object, the whole thing, he calls the splendorness of God. The whole thing is the splendorness of God, or the splendorness of the highest. I must make a personal remark. I was educated in a Catholic boarding school, met by Jesuits. We have to translate part of the Bible, including Ezekiel, from Greek to Latin and from Latin to German. And in the original Ezekiel, the word God never appears. In our translations, be it the German or the English translation, we read the splendorness of God. In the original, it says, the splendorness of the highest, which is quite a difference. So all this together, he calls it the splendorness of the highest. He says, up there I saw something like glittering graves. There was a drone inside. And on this throne the highest was sitting. In your Bible translation, it says on the throne God was sitting. No in the of the Ezekiel. Then he saw four living creatures. And he says these four living creatures had wings. Each one had four wings. And when the wings moved a terrible noise appeared. Ezekiel describes the noise and compares the noise with the, with the, with the thundering of a waterfall. So these, wheel, these wings must have made a terrible uh, uh, noise. Then he describes the legs. The legs were out of metal, definitely. So I've read the metal. And then he comes and describes the wheel. He sees four wheels. And now he does not understand anything anymore. You know, the wheels at Ezekiel's time, they can go forward and backward normal wheel but the wheels you see here or the splendor of the highest they can go forward backward re- uh, uh, right and left at the same time without making a steering movement imagine you're sitting in your car now you have your steering wheel now you turn because you want to go to the curve. the front wheels turn because you go into the curve. a ck describes a wheel which goes forward backward right and left without ever making a turning movement. That's what confuses him completely. He describes this wheel four times. People all over the world love astrology. It's one of our oldest sciences, but to me it's not just a science. Astrology is all... And then finally the legs, the body, and all the details. So, this you all can read in the Bible, in the book of Ezekiel. I just have assumed a few years Roughly 35 years ago I had a secret speech here in the United States in Huntsville at NASA, you know, the Space Administration. Secret because we both, both parties, NASA and I, we agreed not to go to public. NASA did not public that Eric Von Foneriken was there and I did not public that I was at NASA. All the main rocket people, professors, engineers were there Including Werner von Braun, etc. After my speech at NASA, we had a dinner, and then Mr. Joe Bloomrich came to me. Bloomrich was at that time the head of construction department at NASA. He was coming originally from Austria, so he speaks German and English fluently. And while we had dinner, he came to me and said, "Eric, that was quite fascinating. But you know, this speak about a prophet called Ezekiel in the Bible." But in the Bible, you will definitely never find any technology. You know, the Bible, these are visions. These are dreams. They saw gods and his drones driving around. But this is not reality. It's just, just imagination. You will never find any technology in the Bible. Anyhow, he meant very friendly. I am the first one who pointed him to Ezekiel. He never heard something about Ezekiel in his life before. And he told me, now I want to read the Bible. Soon in the next weeks, when I have time, I want to read this Ezekiel personally, and he did. He started to read Ezekiel word by word, and he got very confused, because Ezekiel makes very, very clear statements, statements how big the wheel was, how big he was, etc., so you could, draw, you could draw conclusions. Then two other NASA engineers came to Blumrich's office and asked him, Joseph, what are you doing with the Bible on your desk? <laughs> we are engineers, we are rocket constructors. And he said, you remember this von Däniken here talk, talking to us about the Bible, Ezekiel? This is fascinating. I'll just read this uh, Ezekiel story. We really are able to reconstruct what Ezekiel was describing. You Remember, Ezekiel described the whole object as the splendorness of the highest. Now NASA analyzed phrase by phrase of Ezekiel. They start to make designs, and they start to make calculations. And finally, they had the object, the And this was what it looked like. This is what Ezekiel called the splendorness of the highest. So the whole thing, the totality, is the splendorness of the highest. On the top, he saw something glittering. And inside, there was a chair, a throne. And on this throne, the highest was sitting. The drone was nothing else than the chair of the, of the commander, the commander of the spaceship. And he has his spacesuits on. That's why he was glittering. And then he describes the, the wings, the, uh, the wings which make a terrible noise. And he describes the detail, including the wheel. And now it becomes complicated. You know, wheels, I told you, at the cheapest time, they can go forward and backward. But Ezekiel describes a wheel which goes forward and backward and right and left at the same time, which confuses him completely. Now NASA started to reconstruct a new wheel. This new wheel is separated in different sections. Every section has its own wheel, which you can turn on one side or the other side. Of course, with that wheel, you can go forward or backward. If this wheel should move towards you, Only the lower section would move towards you or back. And with this wheel, you can go in any direction without making a movement. The wheel never turns, as our wheel at the car. In every direction, right on the angle, you can move with this. By the way, NASA received an international patent for that wheel. I think that's very funny. We have a patent on the wheel, uh, it, it, it's at the moment, uh, they use it on, on Mars, on the Mars robot, but the but the original idea comes from Ezekiel. Now, when you read Ezekiel, you will realize that Ezekiel describes the splendors of the highest, this object, from chapter 1 to 40. And in chapter 41, something different happened. He says, the splendors of the highest arrived again. That means a second time, this space shuttle was descending a second time to Ezekiel. At this time, Ezekiel right the hand of the highest took me on my chest and put me on the chair. In my modern interpretation, simply he was taken up to the co-pilot's seat. Then the splendor of the highest goes up. Ezekiel feels the gravity on his chest. He said, and the hand of the highest he has no idea where they go, so he writes in the Bible, they brought me to a very, very high mountain. It states clearly not a high mountain, a very, very high mountain. They were flying over the mountain, and all of a sudden, under him, something like a big village or a little city appears, with different houses. And in the center of this uh, city, is something like a temple. The tea does not say in the original, it was a temple. He said, it is a temple. Because he doesn't know what it is. Maybe you have to ask yourself the question, what is a temple? What was a temple 5,000 years ago? The temple was a building for the gods. Nothing else. Later, we made our temple spiritually or the, gods. And he quickly, he there, and the So they are flying over this uh, little city, and beneath them is something like a temple. The splendor of the highest, and Ezekiel is sitting in there, slowly goes into the building, and he hears the noise of the wheels at that time in every uh, detail. Finally, they came to a standstill, and of a sudden, one of these glittering beings, a, a, a man, a human-like being, glittering closest, comes to Ezekiel. And in the beginning he says, he looks at Ezekiel and says, oh, humans. You humans, you have eyes to see, but you see nothing. You have ears to hear, but you hear nothing. What this does is to prove once again how powerful that symbol of the pyramid is the years that we've had the technology to actually... And then the stranger has a measuring device in his hands. And he orders Ezekiel, now you measure this building, every detail. Ezekiel, in the meantime, knows clearly this is not God. He's not afraid again. He asks back, why should I measure this building? And the other one says, that's the reason why we brought you here. He starts to measure, length, large, every step, every stone, every detail. Read it in Ezekiel, starting at chapter 41, pages of measurement.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: These measurements, a, a German engineer, his name was Hans Herbert Bayer, he studied these measurements, and he asked himself, is this a real building, or is this a physical imagination? And like Blomrich did, the NASA people. The NASA people only reconstructed the splendorness of the highest, the whole body. And now this German engineer group only reconstructs the so-called temple, the building. One day, I received a large a letter of my letter yellow envelope with 30 pages in there. And there I saw fantastical technical drawings and the letter of a German engineer. I didn't know him personally at that time. Mr. Anzravel buyer, and he says, Dear Mr. Van we reconstructed the building according to Ezekiel's measurement. We did not add one centimeter, one inch. We did nothing take up. We exactly took the date which Ezekiel gave us in the Bible. And this was the reconstruction. That's how this building looked like. I was very confused. I visited this engineer, Hans Alberts, <laughs> and asked him, "Do you have an idea what NASA made? Remember, NASA only reconstructed the flying machine, the splendour of the highest. The German engineers only reconstructed the house, the building. The German, of course, knew nothing about the American scientists. I brought the two groups together, and both fit perfectly." But the so-called temple was simply the earthly space station, you know, called a space shuttle. But nothing to do with the holy thing. Now, once you have made these analysis, uh, you should uh, tell something about the Bible. I told you I have in young years translated uh, the Ezekiel, and I know there's a story there. It's theology. These are honest and wonderful people. It's not a question of conspiracy. In theology, they believe that Ezekiel has a vision. He sees the almighty God sitting on a chair on his throne flying around. Now, I personally am a deep believer in God. Here today, I am one of these few persons who pray. But my God does not need a vehicle in which to move around from point A to point B. My God is all over. And the vehicle of God does not make noise and rumbling and loud noise and sound blowing up and heat, etc. So I don't believe in the vision. I said, no, this was not the vision. That was a reality. Now, the theologians believe that Ezekiel has the vision to see the, the almighty God on his flying chariot, chariot of the God flying around. And then in the second part of the, the Bible, where Ezekiel gives all this measurement of the spirit, the theologians believe Now he has a vision of a future temple in the future Jerusalem. It's completely rubbish again. You know, if you know the Hebrew language, the original written form in which Ezekiel was written, (coughs) it's written in a Semitic language. In a Semitic language, you have uh, uh, only uh, uh, consonants, you know, uh, R, N, Y, etc., but no uh, R. R, R, E, O, etc. And from the grammatic, there is no future. It all is written in the present. So there was a temple. I saw the temple. I measured it. Now theologians, they believe he has a vision of the future. So when you read Ezekiel, you will read there, and there will be a temple which will be so long and so large, etc., which is not correct. The correct translation is not there will be in the future. The correct translation is there was a building so long, so large, etc. By the way, the theological version does not function anyhow. Ezekiel he he describes, and they brought me on a very, very high mountain. Where in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem is a very, very high mountain? I know the, the region, nothing, a few hills, that's all, but that nothing of a high mountain. They brought him on a very, very high mountain. He doesn't fit to Jerusalem. He into the future of Jerusalem. He was in a complete different place. Now, we made a computer animation to explain you what Ezekiel really saw. Look at this. Rick Harper here. I'm an office speaker, and career
1: expert.
0: I'm getting ready to speak to an audience here in a moment. They were slaves. They were captured by the the Babylonians on the river with the name of Chebar. And then they hear a noise in the sky. In orbit is a mother spaceship. From this mother spaceship, a smaller vehicle is left out. Only when the smaller vehicle reaches the atmosphere, the noise begins. Outside, where there is no air, you hear no noise. Only now. So they hear the noise. They see a vehicle coming down. They are all afraid. Ezekiel, as a high priest, is afraid that his colleagues, the slaves, the workers, are all afraid. They all fell on the ground. They all believe. Now we see the real Almighty God. Ezekiel, as a high priest, as a first, he stands up because he wants to give reverence and honor to the Almighty God. And then Ezekiel realizes this is not God. And then he starts to write. to describe what he sees, the wings. The wheels, the noise, the detail, everything he describes what he sees on the splendorness of the highest. The detail of the wheels. He realized that the wheels can go in four, um, all four their directions without making a steering movement. His- he writes it down four times. Then he was taking himself up and put him on the, on, the, on the chair of the co-pilot they fly away. And Ezekiel feels when they start the pressure. He says, at the hand of the highest pressed upon my chest. He doesn't know where they go. That's why he writes, they brought me on a very, very high mountain. He doesn't know the name of the mountain, but definitely it was not Jerusalem. Neither Jerusalem at his time nor in the future. Up there, he sees something like a small city. In the center of it, something like a temple, a building of the gods. He's sitting in the splendor of the highest himself. I assume his co-pilot would have calmed him down and said, don't be afraid, human, don't be afraid. Just remark, write everything down, what you realize here, because you have to write it down for your future generations. So Ezekiel writes what he sees. The splendor of the highest came to a standstill over this building, the so-called temple. Slowly, slowly, they sunk into the building. At that occasion, Ezekiel writes, and the noise of the wheels were at that time double as loud as before in the desert, because now he hears the echo. The echo comes back from the walls. The noise is double as loud. Finally, the splendors of the highest came to stand still. Ezekiel can stand out. And then, some of these extraterrestrial arrives in his glittering closes. When he sees Ezekiel, he simply says, Oh, come on, humans. You humans have eyes to see, but you see nothing. You have ears to hear, but you hear nothing. And then, of a sudden, he has a measuring device, and he orders Ezekiel to measure the whole temple. And Ezekiel does measure the temple. Ezekiel has the courage to ask back, Why? Why should I measure this temple? And the other says, That's the reason why we brought you here. Then the Ezekiel book stops. The Ezekiel book in the Bible stops abruptly. It has no no final. We don't have the whole Ezekiel text. So why should a group of extraterrestrials take from a group of humans, a group of slaves, the leader, Ezekiel? Why should they bring him to their space station on a high mountain? Why should they ask him have to make make measurements. Why? What's all the, the purpose of all this? At Ezekiel's time, they all believed this is the real God, the God of the universe. Ezekiel himself is a high priest. They captured his high priest. They brought him away, maybe for a few hours, maybe for a day, what do we know? And then they brought him back to his people. Now his people, His friends, his colleagues are asking, Ezekiel, you are back here? Wonderful. Are you in good health? Have you been hungry, thirsty? Have you had pain, something? But Ezekiel is very happy. He says, no, no, I was on a very, very high mountain. I was flying there. There was a temple. I had to measure the temple. Here are the uh, the measurement dates. Because his society believes that all this has to do with the real God, the omnipotent God and Ezekiel himself is a hybrid. His measurement dates and his report is not drawn away to ashes. They keep it into the holy books. They believe it has to do with God, the real God. The extraterrestrials knew exactly this primitive society will grow up, will develop a technological evolution. Three or four thousand years later, the holy texts are still here. Normal texts, they disappear. But not the holy books. The holy books are translated into many languages, as we have with the Bible, and Ezekiel. So the reader, the future society, maybe three thousand, four thousand years later, they will read this text of Ezekiel. The future society are still strong believers, but not low believers in God, in so living gods which does not exist. They will realize that this is a technological description, wheels which can go in every direction. Uh, Metal, that the, the splendorless, that the wings, we noise, they will realize this is technology which somebody described thousands of years in the past. And now the humans will start to ask questions. They will ask questions maybe did we have a higher society before, a higher technologi- technological advanced society, or was this a visit from outer space? And if it was a visit from outer space, where is the proof? Have these extraterrestrials just disappear without leaving something? That's exactly what they wanted because of a G kill. And not only of a G kill, in Old Indian we have Arjuna, the one who was taken away too. And in other texts, they want that the future societies stubborn up over these texts. They have to read these texts. They say, hey, come on, something is wrong with our past. And that's exactly what we have today. Because of Ezekiel, because of these old texts, we have this new question, with question marks. That's what they wanted. They wanted to bring us to the question, what is the proof? What is the time capsule? What is the what something these so-called gods left behind it? Another story which I just came very short with is Enoch. Enoch in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you just read two phrases about him. All that you read... Enoch was the seventh patriarch before the Great Flood. The seventh patriarch, the first was Adam, the second was his son Seth, etc. Enoch was the seventh before the Great Flood. And the Bible said, Enoch was the first human who disappeared in a flying chariot from the earth. So the Jewish community and the Christian culture community believes that Enoch disappeared with God, but one day he has to return with his body to die here on this planet. So in the Bible, you have only two phrases about Enoch. You know. So where does this book of Enoch comes from? 180 years ago, a British uh, explorer, a British explorer, came to Ethiopia. He was also looking for God 180 years ago. And he went into a convent, and he learned the language of the Ethiopian, that time. And once he knew the language, he went to the old library of the convent, and in the library he found a book. The book of Enoch. He knew the word Enoch from the Bible. but now a book of Enoch. So he translated the book of Enoch from old Ethiopian first into English. Later from English into German. Now, I can only show you a German version. You know, these are very big, thick volumes. The book Riffel and the graph, that are Testament, uh, by Professor Dr. Emil from translated, And in there, we find 126 pages about the book of Enoch. What is so fascinating about Enoch, he writes in the first person, I eye version, I not in the second person, not I hear, they told me. No, he says, what happened to him? He describes that uh, he was 12 years old, the whole uh, village wanted to go to sleep, and they hear the noise in the sky, they saw a light in the sky. And they all were afraid and ran away, except he, he said, I was standing there, and the light comes down to... Earth, and two bees come out close to Enoch, you know, the two bees in glittering, glittering clothes, It was all glittering, Enoch was afraid he came down on the ground, he writes in his book, he smelled the human, the humanity, uh, the, the, the uh, humidity, humidity, of the earth, anyhow, all of a sudden he's taken up on he's shown and somebody speaks in his language, don't be afraid, human, we won't hurt you. But for the first time we have to ask ourselves how can that extraterrestrials speak the language of you very easy in our times, <laughs> and some hundred years ago our ethnologists went to the upper amazon river or to the upper nile in africa and they came together with different tribes Now these different tribes were one had wonderful cultures but none of them Psychology. Enoch learns the language of these extraterrestrials. Once he knows the language, they give him a writing device. They books. Many, many books. He says they dictated me more than 100 books. All books about science, about astronomy, about the calendar, etc. Enoch is the first one, by the, by the way, who gives the names of these extraterrestrials. They sound like this. These are the names of their leaders. The name of the first is Zebun. He's the one who uh, seduced the children of men, etc. of speaks 36 languages. So I even know the names of these fellows who were here thousands of years ago. And these group of human, uh, human-like beings, obviously, they wanted sex. They wanted sex with beautiful daughters. Planet Earth. and this was forbidden. The commander of the station said, you are not allowed to have a sexual contact with them. So there was a mutiny on board. They were against the commander and they went down and had sex with humans. They don't it like this. But when the sons of heavens saw that the brothers of men were fair, they admired them and the desired to mate with them. And they said to each other, we will take them as wives. Altogether there were two hundred uh which, which descended upon the mountain Hermon of the days of Jared. Jared is the father of the Now you think this is again imagination? Hey, something I'm extra is not the descent with humans. Sorry, first look at the Bible. We have the same thing here. The Bible. First book of Moses. And the humans began to multiply. And have daughters, the sons of the gods, in some translation you can read, the fallen angels, saw that they were fair, and they took them to the Not only Enoch, the same thing in Hindu mythology, there was sex between the extraterrestrials and the humans. Why should they have the same body, the same sexual apparatus as we? I'll come back to this at the end of my speech. So Enoch describes what happened. They dictate him all kind of things. One example, I always hear from the critics and the skeptics, come on, Eric. Enoch, the book of Enoch, this is all a dream, he had a dream, that's all. Now, Enoch describes, uh, my leader said to me, human, look out of the window. Do you see this little light out there? You humans, you call it moon, but the moon has no light by itself. The moon receives his light from the sun. Then he explains him why the moon sometimes disappears, is full, is hot, etc. The teacher of Enoch says to him, Young human, you see this glittering, bright shining light? You humans, you call it the sun. You see the other little lights here in the sky, in the nighty sky? You call it stars. Each star is a sun like your sun. And he explains how planetary systems function. He explains that around our planet, Different our our sun, different planets turn, including the Earth, in three hundred and sixty-five days plus a uh, leak hours, not leak here, leak hours. So very, 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 very These are astronomical details, this is scientific data. You cannot dream that a human in Stone Age before the great Flood. He was teached. They also teach him in astronomy, they teach him in calendar, they teach him in engineering, in all kind of things. And he writes all this I handed down to my son Methuselah with the order, do you, my son Methuselah, keep all this, keep it for the human generations after the great flood. They told him that the gigantic great flood will come. You remember the great flood? I think everybody remembers that. And uh, in the Bible they said you know, it was a punishment of God. But I know hundred mythologies of this planet. And in every mythology you have a great flood. You know, the Indians in the highland of Colombia, or the Indians somewhere, the Eskimos in Alaska, the Inuit, it doesn't matter, far in Africa, they all know the story of the great flood. And you remember, it was always a so-called God who descended, who warned the group of the human, who warned them in advance, a gigantic flood was come. None of these gods was an omnipotent God. Could not like a miracle, such as death here, here you have a ship, now, they give them order, you have to construct a ship. To construct a ship means, falling trees, measurement, building. To construct a ship is technology. To construct a ship, this takes at least one year, if not more than one year. So, all these so-called gods, they knew at least one year ahead that the gigantic flood was coming. Not like just us weather weather forecast. What in two, two weeks it will rain? Forget it. It was planned long before. Otherwise they could not build a ship. Technology, they knew it exactly. So they did it and they survived it. And then all our forefathers, prehistoric times, everything was destroyed by the flood. They wanted to grin to show the coming generations how the gods look like. Very brief. This is near Switzerland, in the border to Italy. It's called Valcamonica. This here is in your country, Arizona, at the Hopi territory. This gigantic figure here is 29 meters high. One arm pointed to the sky, the other pointed to the ground. 29 meters high lying on the, the way to Nazca, direct before the plane of Nazca. In archaeology, they call it the great Martian god. All these so-called gods. Here you cannot see nothing because it's near the city of Tita. Because in Peru, this figure points directly to the sky. It looks like this. You cannot see it from the ground. You have to fly. Otherwise, you have no chance to see it. The Sahara Desert. Africa. It's far away from South America, from Nazca, far away from the Hopi Indians in your country. Look at this. The of the figure is six meters high, 6,000 years old. This continues all over the world. This is Australia. The so-called gods were always represented with helmets, with helos, with rays around their heads. Now, this again, Australia. You all realize that between Australia, between North America, Hopi territory, between South America, Nazca, Peru, between the Sahara Desert, are thousands and thousands of kilometers. There are oceans, and in our prehistoric time, our forefathers had no contact together. You could not just book a fly over there to Las Vegas. So why have they represented their gods all in the same manner, with helmets and halos around their head? worldwide, and the people had no contact between each other. Later, they learned to chisel, to make figures. This is in Tulum. Tulum is Mexico, not far from here, directly on the Caribbean Sea. The whole city, the Maya city of Tulum, is dedicated to the ascending gods. You see his red legs here at the head, and then his hands, like somebody uh, is uh, lying on a box, box ladder and it always has wings they fly down from the sky they are represented like this the whole city of tulum is dedicated to the descending gods then worldwide what we had in, in cave paintings before later when they learned to make figures to chisel, to paint they represented their gods this is in the museum of guatemala city but the world is full of these things this is in Japan, now Guatemala, today's Guatemala, had nothing to do with Japan. This is prehistoric Japan, they call it Dogu figures. The prehistoric Japanese people believe that this is one of the gods. But also in prehistoric times, the Japanese know nothing about glasses. Yeah. So Why have they copied? Why have they represented the gods worldwide, in the same way? This one here, the sense, you know, he has a helmet The is... With... Hands are bending down. His feet upward. This, is, this you find in La Venta. La Venta is near the city of Villa Hermosa in Mexico. He descends to the humans. In your country, the Hopi Indians in Arizona. Just go to the Hopi Indians and go to a souvenir shop there. You find some of these pictures, and some of these figures. They are called Kachina figures. Then you ask the Hopi literature, the Book of the Hopi, which is a scientific literature. What is the kachinas? What is, that they mean in kachinas? The kachinas were the spiritual teachers from heaven who descended to the forefathers of the Hopi. They teach them in astronomy, in different belongings. And the Hopi, today, still, the Hopi still today make these figures, the kachina figures, you can buy them in souvenir shops. Kachina pictures, simply do not forget that these gods were there, our teachers some thousands of years ago, and they promised to return in the future. So we should not forget the visit of the gods long time ago because they will return, so that we are not afraid. Now this is today's North America here in your country. Now take 12,000 kilometers away from here, down to South America. The same thing with an Indian tribe called the Kayapo. The Kayapo live on the upper Amazon River. Every year they have a festivity. On this festivity, their shaman uh, dresses in a straw garment, completely covered. He has no openings for eyes, mouth, nose, nothing. And they dance around this straw man. You will just see him. And they sing the story long, long time ago for their forefathers. But of for a sudden there was a noise in the sky and the being descended, a big being. They were all afraid. Finally they realized he did not harm them. They came down out of the village. Now you see the men coming here. If you're
1: inspired to advance your career, we invite you to learn
0: online at Purdue University Globe. Within four days, the strangers learned the language of the natives. And he told them his name was Bepe Kororosh. Pepe means I come from the firmament. He teaches them in several belongings, as the other cases, (coughs) in astronomy, in agriculture. He teaches them in some forms of (coughs) weapons, how it is easier to to, to make chasings, etc. And before he left, he promised in the far future he will return again. And in order not to forget his visit, they represent every year this heavenly teacher in the form of a straw garment, straw man, with no opening for mouths or ears, etc. He was a teacher from the sky. Now, if we have such a thing only in North America, the hope is now, it's worldwide. So what do we need more about all these things? They were here, and we have the reports practically in every culture. I don't understand why this is so complicated to understand it. Why our scientific community, especially our archaeologists, the ethnologists, they are so blind; they cannot see it, or they don't know it. I love discussions with skeptics. It's wonderful because they lose hand. Anyhow, anyhow. It doesn't matter. But I love the discussions. And when we respect each other, when we are not lying and bluffing, a discussion honestly. After two hours, they always confess to me, "Eric, we didn't know that. We never hear about these books. We never hear the word of Enoch or Ezekiel or anything." We don't know it, Mm. because we know it, it all fits together, the cave paintings, the figures, the old writings, and all these things here.
2: (sighs) Let me check my birds. I'm Episode, the gods were astronauts.
0: To change the theme very briefly, because something I have to explain here, which nerves me every year. You know, ah, oh. huh? okay? Ah, chariots of the gods, Palenque, talking about chariots of the gods. <coughs> Sorry, it doesn't come from smoke. I don't smoke, uh, at least not much. <coughs> no. <laughs> so, in chariots of the gods, the cover show the picture of Palenque. Palenque is a Maya city in Central America. And in Palenque, there are different pyramids. They call it temples. And one of these step pyramids is called the Temple of Inscription, because up there they found 812 inscriptions. And in 1952, Professor Dr. Rutz Lulia found, discovered up here, a groove in the ground, a groove with a button. And uh, they chiseled out, and inside the pyramid, there was a staircase. But in 1951, the staircase was completely filled with stone. It took three years before all these stones were taken out of the staircase. Three years later, they landed under the pyramid, seven meters under the pyramid. They were standing before a big door in the form of a triangle. This was the first time we had such a door in the form of a triangle. The door was opened roughly. They destroyed it partly. The grid was made only today against uh, the visitors, and then they stood in a room. The room was seven meters high, and from the ceiling to down, the room was full with stalactites and stalagmites. You know these grow. Uh, you know, that means the room is very, very, very old, thousands and thousands of years older than the pyramid itself. Later, the pyramid was constructed over the room. The room existed a long time before. And there was this uh, bottom plate, three meter 80 long, two meter 20 large, one block. And on the plate, an incredible uh, drawing. You can just see something like a frame. In the center of the frame, is someone sitting, bending forward, almost like a motorizing he has an oxygen mask on his nose. to use his upper hand, you will just see here, his upper hands to manipulate control. With the lower hands, you still see the forefingers. He's winding up something. He's sitting on a chair. Outside of the frame, outside of the frame, you see a linking flam. In 1939, an international organization headed by John D. Rockefeller,
1: decided to put together a global tuning standard to a simple 440 hertz. Now the challenge with that was that if we add up four plus four plus zero, does it equal nine? It must answer at nine. If not, it will not have a perfect geometric correspondence. Geometry is simply the music that we listen to with our eyes our site.
2: While I was playing the didgeridoo, I was able to produce the gamma
1: frequencies
2: which are above 40 hertz.
1: So perhaps playing this ancient instrument helps to entrain the brain waves to simulate expanded states of consciousness.
0: Now this was found in 1952 of course archaeology had immediately their explanation archaeological explanation they said it represents pakal pakal was the second last ruler of the city of palenque and pakal is sitting in the open mouth of a mythological monster you see what Archaeological nonsense. In the meantime, in the meantime, more than 50 years have passed, and they have learned much more than before. There is a writing all around, and in the meantime, Professor Doctor Stewart and Stewart is the father and the son Stewart, both brilliant American archaeologists, Maya specialists. They you know are able to translate the writing around it. They said yes, that's the most modern explanation now after 50 years. Yes, it represents Pakal. It had nothing to do with the open mouth of a mythological monster, nothing with the tree of life, nothing with the stylized hairs of the beard of the weather god, and all that rubbish which we are told. The whole plate, the stone plate, has to do completely with the cosmos and with the universe. Pakal is leaving our planet Earth. I am always accused by the sceptics. I should not. I am not allowed Apparently to be said. Apparently,
2: they transcended. This, uh, they ascended
0: crosswise. I should talk about it lengthwise. Lengthwise, it looks like this. Now you know I'm uh, a man with fantasy, and it, they tell me that's the only correct way to look at the plate, okay? My fantasy jumps to another continent, far away from Central America. Let's go to uh, Indonesia. In Indonesia, is a big temple called the Borobudur. What is composited of hundreds and hundreds of these stupas. These figures are called stupas. For us, they look like a bell, stupas. Now, in Buddhism, the stupa has different meanings. One of the meanings is the stupa is the smaller vehicle with which you can reach the big vehicle of the god. you remember how Jesus was taken in a vimana up to the mother Ezekiel was taken in a smaller vehicle up to the mountain. Mother spaceship, etc. So you always have a smaller vehicle. So in Buddhism, they they believe the stupa is the smaller vehicle in which you can reach the big vehicle of the gods. Now every stupa is not empty. In every stupa, somebody is sitting. In that case, the young Buddha, because it's a Buddhist Buddhist temple. What is he doing here? He's sitting there. He of the gods. Look at this. Just look at it with modern eyes. Here we have Palenque. It becomes a stupa. And it disappears. It's all... <clears throat> it's all a question with what eyes we look at it. But finally worldwide it's a similar tradition. In different forms, different words, and this continues. I said before, what nerves me, what makes me crazy every year, is Natsuka. You all remember Natsuka. What do I have against a scientist in Natsuka? Natsuka is this gigantic desert, roughly 500 kilometers south of Lima in Peru. When you fly over Natsuka, first you see nothing, simply a desert, with brown and yellow stones and sand. And then all of a sudden you see some figures, figures of fishes, monkeys, spiders and all kinds of things, but of such over-dimensional size that you can see them only from the air. Then you fly a little higher, then you see something that looks like airstrips. Starts abruptly, ends abruptly. The longest of these lines is 3.8 kilometers long. longest. Then you see smaller lines. You know there are these airstrip lines, block lines, and smaller ones. The longest of the smaller long lines is 23 kilometers long. Stride ahead. Ah twenty-three kilometers. About eighteen kilometers. Ah miles, miles, eighteen, miles, roughly. So what nerves me here, practically every year on world television you see so-called documentaries. And when the normal people see a documentary, they believe this is science. This is real science. They teach us what you see. But in reality, they don't show us the reality. I show you now 20 pictures about Nazca, which you have never seen, neither in in, in the scientific textbook, neither, neither in the documentaries.
2: Von Daniken.
0: <laughs> this is Nazca. <Natsuka>. Original Nazca. <laughs>
2: I really like the idea of meditating, uh, maybe you even think you should be meditating, uh, but perhaps you've never had a meditation experience that really.
0: ...Natska, But what they show you on TV are just the figures the fishes, the monkeys, the spiders, and so on. They explain you, it's very fast appears, and with this method you can make figures. But that's not the mystery of Natsuka. The mystery of Natsuka are these lines. And they never show these lines on television. I said, the longest of it is 3.8 kilometers long. Look at this picture. Put it in your brain, Seal it in your brain, not I so Seal it in your brain. You never see it on television, neither on scientific textbooks. They suggest to you Natsuka, the mystery of Natsuka are these figures. The figures are not the mystery of Nazca. This is the mystery of Nazca. Then you see whole mountain, the mountain top is cut off. Me. And because it nerves me, all these things, nerves me. we have decided to clarify all this scientifically. You know, until today, only archaeologists have been working there. I adore archaeology. That's wonderful. And the archaeologists I know are brilliant people. It's not the question of, of, of conspiracy, etc. But archaeologists are asking different questions. They're asking how old is it? How old is this bone? How old is this fire, etc. What is it, it's called a temple, etc. I have complete different questions. I want to know what is the chemical composition of these lines? Is it different than the, the next composition of the sand? I want to know what is the, uh, the resistance in the electricity? Are there some magnetical anomalies? Uh, anomalies?
2: Yeah, I want to find
0: out on the scientific way, what's wrong Compare these lines, compared with the desert just next to the lines. And therefore, the Erich von Däniken Foundation has, I had the idea to uh, make a scientific expedition there. We found six universities who work together with the Eric von Däniken Foundation. One university is the Universitat Católica in Lima, Peru, because you need a local university. Without this, you never get the permission. Then we have two German universities, a a Swiss university, etc. We need... For the scientific analysis of this, we need roughly 240,000 euros, comparable 240,000 euros. But all these universities are working together. What is left, what we don't have, is about $60,000 we left. That's why we decided to look if we find this missing $60,000 by crowdfunding. Look at this up there, the red writing. Take your knot when you are home. Please go in there, look what I say in there, what the idea is, what universities are working with it, the names of the figures, what the plan is. And maybe you have the idea, okay, I spend 20, 20, $20 or whatever for the crowdfunding, because we want to realize this. We will start this in fall, but this international scientific team goes to Nazca, and makes finally scientific analysis, not only archeological, analysis in the textbook about nazca i have learned so far what is it all these lines it's a cult for the water gods it's an astronomical calendar it's a cult for agriculture it's a pre-inca sport place some sort of pre-inca olympia it's a copies of a fata morgana it's a start place of hot air balloon these are acre plots boundary makers procession street, maps, it's all rubbish, because if all you have this explanation in archaeology, where are the the footprints? Where are the footprints of the people going to the lines? The lines start abruptly, end abruptly, as if somebody from the air has come, and not somebody worked through it, they worked it. We want to find out all this. Some two uh, and a half thousand years from now, Greek historian, Herodotus, you learned Herodotus in school. He was called, a man called him the father of history. He was in, in Egypt, 450 BC, 2,500 years from now. He was there for many years. And he also was in Tavis. Tavis is today's Luxor on the Nile. And in the second book of history, Herodotus writes, the high priest showed him 241 statues. One statue next to the other. And the high priest gave to every statue an explanation. He explained that the name, his name was, and he was living from then to then, etc. And at the end of the 241 statues, the high priest said to Herodotus, these 241 statues represent 11,340 years. At that time, the gods from the firmament were among the humans. 11,340 years. Now, Herodotus made this statement. 2,500 years from now, which means I have to add 2,500 to the 11,340, roughly 14,000 years ago, according to the father of history, Herodotus, the extraterrestrials were here. Of course, in archaeology, they never took Herodotus by word. According to archaeology, the history of old Egypt starts roughly 3,000 B.C., but not 14,000 B.C., They said, what is he talking? What is he telling rubbish? The same Herodotus, just a few lines later, in his second book of history, you can control it, chapter 141, 142, he says that under the Great Pyramid, there is a lake. The lake covered as clear water. And the clear water, uh, uh, there is a sea. In archaeology, they never took this for serious. Now we slowly go into the pyramid. I show you the lake, the sea, and the detail of it. You know, I know. So this should be the entry, should be the entry. But the entry was never found until 800, 823. This is, they're, they're really, really this is called the upcoming shaft, 23 meter No, you can climb up there, but only one meter high. You have go down on your knees. After 23 meters, you can to the so-called Great Gallery. This is the Great Gallery. This is 47 meters long. Imagine that. Eight and a half meter high. Here starts the first question. Why have the builders, the constructors of the pyramid, first constructed this small shaft, so small that you cannot even transport a centimeter to there? And then after 23 meters, you don't understand it two chambers. One chamber is called the queen's chamber. The other chamber is called the queen's chamber. It looks like this. Now we go into the queen's chamber. That's this one here in on the middle. Okay. In the queen's chamber, there is a hole in the wall. This hole exists on the south side and on the north side. And it's very important to know this hole exists only since about 180 years before the wall was closed. Then a British explorer came there and he was he was looking for sh- treasures. He had a little hammer. He was hammering all the time on the wall and it sounded hollow, and then they opened the, the wall. So in the beginning, this was not there. Now inside the hole, there's a shaft. When you point in with your, with your beam, you see there's a shaft going about two meters, horizontal. Start the in there. House or a laptop?
1: Which one do you think is worth more? Well, definitely not the house because it not only costs millions.
0: A friend of mine who do constructed a robot. That's how it was 20 years ago. This robot is a steel construction, and he entered the shaft going out from the Queens Chamber. First, the two meter horizontal. And then the robot climbs up inside the shaft. In whole archeology, span the specialist told us the shaft is only about eight meters long. After eight meters, it comes to a blind end. And the robot continues, as you would just see. It. First two meters horizontal, then starts the climbing inside. So the archeologists believed after eight meters, it came to a standstill, but that was not correct. The robot, the robot continued inside. He passed the eight meter mark. Continued climbing inside the pyramid. Ten meters, <laughs> meter, fifteen meters, twenty meters. Archaeologists could not inspire anymore. They could not understand what's going on here in the Great Pyramid. He climbed up. Always the wall changed. It was granite. It was sandstone. It was basalt. All kinds of different stones. You saw openings who looked like doors. Now you have to understand, this shaft is only 14 centimeters by one side. You cannot send a name in there to climb in there. Only with the robot is possible. After 62 meters, the robot came to a standstill before a little door. The little door had something like two bracelets, you would just see it. There was crashing on the wall. About thousands of years ago in the past, somebody must have pressed something inside here, which left thrice- traces behind. The stones here of this wall are alabaster. Alabaster looks like a marble. Very, very polished. Very precise. These pictures were taken roughly 25 years ago, by this small robot we saw before. There was a stone blocking the continuation, but the robot made it. He overtook this blocking, continued his his trip inside. This was meter 32. He continued 40 meters, 50 meters, 60 meters. At 62 meters, the robot came to a standstill before a small door. The small door had something like two little metallic braces that you will just see them. The wall here is alabaster. You see how polished and directly. Don't forget, you are 62 meters inside the pyramid, starting from the Queen's Chamber. That bloody work. bracelets. Now watch the next picture. The robot had a laser. And the laser beam will touch this door and the laser beam will go under. You see the red point here? all this was 25 meters uh, uh, years ago. What happened since then? At that time, 25 years ago, Papish was more or less informed. There was a robot in there, but you hear nothing. What happened since then? We hear nothing in the public. After this demonstration here, the American National Geographic Society came down to Egypt, and they constructed a new robot. And the new robot, he had a A drilling. And with the drilling, they made a hole into this door. And they pushed the light inside. And all that they could see, there was nothing behind it, except the next wall. It was empty. Then you see the next wall. That was the situation roughly 18 years ago. What happened since then? rich man from Singapore, he wanted to know what's behind it, and he gave the order to construct another robot, robot number three. The first robot was from Gantenbrink, the German, the second from the National Geographic Society, or the third robot constructed by this uh, uh, rich uh, Hindu man from Singapore. And he called it the Jedi, Jedi robot. Funny. They made a hole again through this wall, you see. There's the first wall with these two metallic pressures. Then comes the next wall. And now he makes a hole into the next wall. Small hole, just big enough for an endoscope. They put an endoscope through it. Some light. So that toilet paper has been proven to be unhygienic. So why are we still using it? It doesn't clean as well. It's awful for the earth, and it's not cheap. What's behind it? next room. You know, when you put an endoscope, you cannot make gigantic big pictures. You make hundreds of small pictures and in the computer you put these small pictures together to a big picture. And that was behind it, the next room. So it continues. First room, second room, third room, all behind it. You cannot, we know exactly the geographical location. We know exactly what it is. So the skeptic will ask, why don't we go in there? And open it because you cannot. The shaft is sixty two meters high, but the shaft has only a wide of fourteen centimetres. You cannot climb in there. You need high tech to do so. High tech is very expensive. you need a permission or a kid uh, from the Department of Archaeology and Antiquity in Egypt. Put a kid you need in there. <laughs> so this continues. We know under the Great Pyramid is another room. It's called the Unfinished Room. The tourists normally, I guess, you have all been in the Pyramid. And you go in the Pyramid, you can climb up the Great Gallery, but you can never climb down in the rock under the Pyramid. Here again, a shaft. This time the shaft is big enough. You can climb down there. It's a little more than one meter. Not this one, one. The shaft goes down into the rock. Shaft is 119 meters long. Imagine 190 meters going diagonally down there. And then you come to a room in the rock under the pyramid. You know, 190 meters, yeah, diagonal. If you look it directly, you are 38 meters under in the rock under the pyramid. There is a room, it's called the unfinished room. It makes absolutely no sense. In 830 and and 23 BC, uh, now after after Christ, the the pyramid was for for the first time opened by al mamun He was uh, the ruler of Egypt at that time. He also found this room. He was down there. And he writes in his biography that down there he found three other rooms. Three other rooms. In one room he found sarcophaguses with strange beings which had long, elongated heads. Strange weapons which he could not understand and strange objects in their head. And he was afraid. He was afraid about the power of the God. He gave order to change everything down here that no one after him could rediscover these rooms. I was down there many times. I always had a hammer with me. You knocked at the wall. And sometimes it sound hollow. But you can do nothing. You cannot continue. Something has changed the whole, somebody has changed the whole situation down there. And now comes the story with Herodotus, who says there is a lake under the Pyramid. A lake with clear water. And the clear water covers the sarcophagus. I said, archaeology never took Herodotus' work uh, uh, serious. He, he's he's dreaming. He speaks about 11,340 years. He speaks about the lake under the Pyramid. There can be no lake. There is a lake. We were down. Ramon here, my wonderful young man and I, we were down there. The entry side of the Great Pyramid. You come first to this small
2: room.
0: Wow. Down a staircase. From this point, there is a shaft directly (laughs) in the rock. Anyhow, this shaft is so large that it has room for two levels. You see two levels here? And you come to a room which is in the rock of the pyramids. That room. Here, seven niches are cut out of the rock. But only in two niches are some sarcophaguses. This one is black, black, basalt. Next one is granite. The other ones are empty. Just completely, perfectly, just out of the rock. From this point, you go deeper again. Now you just show a shaft which had room for two levels. The continuation this one is not the same shaft you will see. There's only room for one there. Now you are under the pyramid, deep under the pyramid. And then it's at the right angle, a crossing. You have to go down in your knees. A few steps and you are under the pyramid. And there is a lake. Exactly as Herodotus told us. With perfectly clear water. And inside the lake is a sarcophagus. Exactly as Herodotus that's written two and a half thousand years ago. In the beginning, you see nothing. You need your eyes. We could not use flashlights here. As soon as we would use flashlights, we simply have a reflector like a mirror. And we have no picture. I can't now you see the sarcophagus here, in the water, covered up by clear water. They told me the sarcophagus was empty when they found it. I don't know if this is true, truth, but, this, but they told me. And there's the water. Now, the antiquity department of antiquity in Egypt, they wanted of course to know where this sarcophagus came from. Because the shafts are smaller than the sarcophagus. They could not transport it down there. You remember the one shaft just with one leather? This is bigger. So there must be other entries. So they were they were pushing out the water, and here you see the same sarcophagus without the water this time. What a precision. Incredibly. Hmm. That's the newest knowledge in the Great Pyramid. Lightsabers are finally a reality, and you can own one. This new military flashlight is basically a lightsaber that fits in knowledge in the Great Pyramid. Uh, the skeptics, who of course are reasonable, I told you lot of skeptics, you know we live in a society, the scientific community always want to be reasonable and they are afraid to be ridiculed. That's why they never touch something like UFOs or extraterrestrials. No, no, they really good. Reality, they don't know much. I am accused of, I think that I'm accused, my thinkers are accused. We say that extraterrestrials were there, and we say that these extraterrestrials visited us from far away. This is absolutely impossible. Every child knows the distance in the universe are measured by by uh, light ears. So you cannot cross these light years. The next star is roughly four light years away and it could be 10 or 20 light years away so we have no possibility to see each other. Even if extraterrestrials do exist, we never come together. That's what the skeptics say. But it's all not correct again. Uh, Imagine your American Space Shuttle, you have it here. Every shot up there can transport a heavy load of 30 tons. Now, it's just a question of money. How much money do to you to invest? If you have three space shuttles, for the moment you have none, if you work together with the Russians, if you have three, or if you have 30, if you have 30 space shuttles, then you would start every week, not every few months, every week. And every week you would transport 30 tons of heavy load into the orbit between Earth and the Moon. These heavy loads are pre-publicated. Locks. You put them all together to a gigantic spaceship. The spaceship has the shape of a the form of a ring. This is a must, because when you have the form of a ring, you turn the spaceship, and by turning around its own axis, you create an artificial gravity inside, by simply fugitive force. So you always have ground under your feet. You are not weightless. But then you have to put a propellant in there, and slowly this spaceship starts to move slowly, if you only would reach 2% of the speed of light, I'm not speaking of over speed of light, but this scientific, just 2% of the speed of light, you would reach a distance of 10 light years within 500 human years. I say, come on, 500 human years, no one of us will become 500 human years old. It's not necessary. This is a generation spaceship. On board, you make love, you make children, grandchildren and on. So after 500 years, we have reached the distance of 10 light years. So it's absolutely possible to move in the stars, between the stars, between one of the other, one star and the other. Even with primitive technology, not with light speed or nearly coming to light speed. Of course it is possible. The critics skeptics never mentioned this possibility. Generation spaceship. Then the next accusation is always, even if extraterrestrials do exist, Even if they could reach us, they would never look like we. They would never look like humans. They would maybe look like elephants or flying tentacles or whatever, but never look like us. This is wrong again. Uh, This is a theory which i shortly explain. Panspermia. Panspermia uh, was brought uh, into the world by the Swedish Nobel Prize winner, Mr. Arrhenius. It was 90 years ago. The following idea is panspermia. You go out with a spaceship, as I explained. You create a new society. And now the first society has an interest to spread out themselves. As we have plans at the moment, we want to go to Mars. And from Mars, we go to the next solar system. And so spread out yourself. Spread out yourself means humans are spreading out themselves. You can do it also by spermia. This is why right, panspermia You infect a section of your Milky Way with your own informations of life. And it will work, and you create on planets which are similar to the planet Earth a new evolution, of form of life. This is Panspermi, Magno It works. So it will be quite possible that extraterrestrials look like us or look similar to us. All the arguments, this is not possible. They are not looking like us. Forget it. It is possible to reach the, the distance, and it is possible that they look like this. So... Unfortunately, my time is over and I have to stop. I want to uh, remember you. Take your time and look at this uh, because That's something which I have in my soul. I want to have scientific results concerning Natska. I want to shock the world again with scientific clear results. And say, I'm sorry, what are you telling us? Here we have the scientific results brought together by five different universities. We can do it. And we will bring it to public.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, you were
0: listening to me. Awesome.
1: Thank you. All right, man. You've been feeling sad most of the time, losing interest in things you once cared about? You may be experiencing these and other symptoms that are difficult to understand. These symptoms are worth exploring with a doctor. Learn more about major depressive disorder and a potential treatment option at managingdepression.us.
2: depression.us. Right. See the comments
1: here.
2: <clears throat> he was 84 when he gave this lecture, standing for a whole one, one and a half hours. Hats off to his knowledge and contribution to opening up the other people. Eric so passionate towards his interest and really loves sharing his knowledge at no cost. What a wonderful person! I'm so grateful for this knowledge. I was 10 when I read his book, I was about the same title as the presentation, I was so fascinated then, 25 years later. There you go. 9,400 year origin of ancient Egypt discovered an underground pyramid. By the way, that's apparently uh, from what I've seen other, other other places. Gangaia, that underground sarcophagus is Osiris. safe to watch later how about MAGA midterm meltdown